Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. Normally, I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been sharing what to me is a very special and important interview with Manda Scott. In June, I was visiting with Manda at her home in the UK. When I first met Manda almost 20 years ago now, she had only recently stopped practicing veterinary medicine to become instead a full-time writer. She had already published a series of detective novels, and now she was focused on her Boudicca books, a series of historical novels set at the time of the Roman invasion of Britain. Manda's writing is very much informed by her spiritual practice. She teaches shamanic dreaming. That was the connection we were exploring in a course that we did together. We were looking at the link between my work with balance and Manda's shamanic dreaming. We had a fabulous three days. And on our last evening together, we sat down at her kitchen table and recorded a podcast. For me, this was such an important conversation. Manda is reminding us that our love of horses is connected to our love for this planet. We are in what has been referred to by many as the sixth extinction. It is my belief that horse people can and must make a difference. At the end of part two, I asked Manda what we need to be doing to manage our manure piles to help us be better soil farmers. It made for an unusual cliffhanger. So now let's pick up where we left off with the answer to that question. There's so much more we can be doing and we're just thinking about we're not just maintaining our horses, but we're growing soil. That's a different mindset. That as I'm managing my pastures, as I'm managing the land that that we have, that I am a soil manager. A soil farmer, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yes, yeah. yes. And and if we can do this... So what do I do with my manure pile? So I, everyone who has horses generates a manure pile of one sort or another. How do, so you're keeping your horse turned out all well, the but time. You're, you, you have your I horses in the barnyard. You have a, a manure pile. I do. I have a manure pile as well. And whether I, whether I manage it so it piles up or I do something else with it, there's a certain number of wheelbarrows that get wheeled somewhere. Yes. And, and if we're not careful, we then create an ecological nightmare because the runoff from the manure pile is contaminating the water systems. Yes. And one of the planetary boundaries that we're hitting is that our water systems are just destroyed. So, so, there are a number, I keep looking into this. So you can use it to mulch the land. We don't put in inorganic fertilizers, but you can use it to fertilize the land. But on the whole, I don't want to. I want the horses, that's fine. Their dung on the land is completely fine. But if we put too much nitrogen on the land, the the grass will not be making the relationships it needs with the soil biome. So we have to be really careful about that. However, 
There's a really interesting, this is back to David Johnson. He created something called the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. Get onto YouTube. He's done videos of how to make it. Um, and he creates this thing. And it's not going to use up a lot of your dung, but I still want people to know about it because you, you put whatever it is, and in this case it would be our mix of straw and horse dung, into the bioreactor. And you treat it the way he says, which is basically it's just very aerated. You leave it for a year. And he was getting, he's a bacteriologist, bacterial colonies of species that people haven't seen for over 100 years. And, and that kind of bacterial population, it's, it's a different kind of biodiversity, but it's incredibly valuable. You scatter that on the land and anything will grow. It'll really help your soil biome. So what I'm looking at now is ways of how can we use our horse dung without... The, the bioreactor is a really interesting thing, but it's very labour-intensive and it's quite small. Okay. Um, but its principle is massively aerating. Put everything together in, in one bit and, the, and it's very aerated and then you keep it damp for a year while it does its thing. Okay. So, so this is not practical for anyone who's got more than a donkey, basically, because it's it's little. So, what we then need to look at is are there ways of taking our horse dung and the vast volumes that we produce, and and essentially hot composting them in a way that would produce this level of bacterial biodiversity? Because then we have a virtual cycle of of sorry, a virtuous cycle of increasing soil biodiversity, increasing the gut biodiversity of our horses, therefore increasing the biodiversity of their dung, bringing that in, basically cooking it all up into this amazing mix, which will have increased biodiversity, which we put on the soil, and we get more biodiversity. Right. And, and, and it can only be good, partly because you get up to really high temperatures, and so you're killing off all the potentially pathogenic bacteria. Right so that's the like the O2 composter that I have. Yeah, it really which is. Which is a, you're, you're pumping air, air. through the yeah. manure pile yeah. and it composts down at a much faster rate, but it kills the parasites. Yes. So it can go back onto. And then it can go back onto the soil. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at the moment that seems the best way. Apparently the, the donkey sanctuary, which is one of those amazing places in England that gets astonishing amounts of money. I went to visit it once and it had this huge barn that as far as I could tell had been built in order to put a very big plaque on the side with the names of all the little old ladies with double-barreled names who had given their entire estate to the donkey sanctuary. <laughs> it had, I was used to be an equine anaesthetist and I, I have never seen anaesthetic facilities like the ones they had at the donkey sanctuary purely in order to knock donkeys out to castrate them. That's all they seem to do in this amazing surgical suite. I was so jealous. Anyway, <laughs> they have a system where they create rows of, of their dung and, and the runoff is very carefully filtered out of the way and it composts down very, very fast. They've got a system where it, it, they, they don't need anything extra because they've got it into kind of furrows. Right, right. Um, and it seems to compost down hugely fast and, and because they have hundreds of donkeys. And they spread it on their fields and their fields are extraordinary, apparently. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to go down. It's down in Devon. And see if we can just create systems that are practical for people so that we 
are maximizing the benefit of something that should be a resource, but we tend to right. treat as, as a waste product that we don't know what to do with. That's right. So I, I and I think this is a really f- fertile, I hate, sorry. It's <laughs> yes, getting late. No pun intended. And no it pun intended. It's a, it's a really, an area that we could really look at because, because what do we do with this mixture of straw, urine and, and feces that we collect by the tonne? with our horse systems and in an, in the end with an equicentral system they're hardly ever in and so and so you don't it's all on the land and if you've got your chicken tractor or whatever it is to spread it then it gets spread very evenly over the land and it's gone you know you've got dung beetles doing their work but, but my horses in meantime, are in for exactly by choice yeah. they come in yes. because in the summer the yes. flies are because you have actual summers with actual sun that's yeah. right that's right and they prefer to be in and when I open the gates and I say go forth and graze they say no thank no, no. you it's no, too no. hot mom don't want to do hot. that the flies yeah. are horrible yeah. so so I think your hot composter at the moment it looks beautifully designed and it's a really good idea yeah. and let's let's see if we can find ways of helping people who maybe haven't got the facility for that to use this resource in the best way possible I think watch this space and we'll come back to that one right right so lots of lots of food for thought, lots of things to go go out and stare at your pastures and say, hmm, yeah. Yeah. hmm, mm. what what read read dirt to soil. Yes, yes. Yeah. So so resources. Yes, resources. Bionutrient Food Association, really interesting website, and they've got endless videos of of how to help regenerative farming. Okay, so off. say that again. Bio Bionutrient Food Association. I think it's. It's their website is bionutrientfood.org, I think, but I'll check that up and okay, well, let you know. Can. And we put that in the show notes. And the other right. one, the book Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown is really well worth reading. Um, and between those two, and, and then just YouTube, um, there's a couple of other websites that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I will make sure that you have them Okay. by the time this goes out. And then the to, you can do a Google search on the Equicentral and you'll get yes. lots of yes. good information on that. Yes. And then if people want to depress themselves, they can read the Deep, Deep Adaptation. Adaptations article, which uh, addresses the changes that we need to be making yeah. for the planet. Yeah, Deep Adaptation paper by Jem Bendel. I'll give you the link to that also. Yeah. I think I think everybody should read it. I did cry for two days after I finished reading it, but on the other hand, there's a lot of support. The Extinction Rebellion grew out of the Deep Adaptation paper. And the right. Extinction Rebellion is huge in Britain now and I think could be transformative in the way that regenerative farming could be transformative. If we can bring this all together, this understanding that we stand on the cusp of extinction. You know, this is not trivial anymore. But we have the capacity to change. We have the tools. It's, it's not that we lack the tools, we just lack... The organization and everybody working towards not becoming extinct. It's quite <laughs> yeah. an important thing yeah. to do. Yeah. And we can do this while still having fun with our horses. You know, I'm not stopping having fun with the horses, but I just think also I want to try and draw the carbon into the land and create biodiversity. These are not mutually exclusive things. No, no, I think it's very exciting that the horses can be part of the solution. Really exciting. Really, yeah. yes. So on that note, which is actually a very positive note, I think I'm going to thank you immensely for sharing. And we'll 
say goodbye for now. Thank you. That was great. Yes, it was. Perfect. Thank you. At the end of parts one and two of this interview with Manda, you've heard me say that this podcast is a call to action. Horse people can make a difference. We just need to know what to do. So again, let me tell you about the resources we are creating for you. The first is a Facebook group, Horses for Future. This is a gathering place for people who want to make a difference. It's an open group. We want to share ideas. What books, articles, podcasts are each of us finding? Let's share the information so we can all become great soil farmers and change the world. What is working for you on your land? Let's share our successes. You never know, your solution may spark an idea that helps someone else create a better solution for their own horses and land management. So Horses for Future is our gathering point. Every week we'll have projects we can do together that will help us all learn. We've already begun with our first two projects. You can check out what people have been doing at the Facebook group, Horses for Future. Horses for Future will be a learning center that we grow together. And Horses for Future supports the Fridays for Future initiatives. In addition, we have started a website, sequestercarbon.com. Here we'll be building up an archive of articles and links to books, audio recordings, and webinars. If we're going to make a difference in climate change, we need to know how. So this site will be one to refer back to on a regular basis. All of this is in its infancy, but it is exciting. The news these days can be so overwhelming. Every day there are news stories that tell about the disaster that is climate change. The ice caps are melting faster than anyone expected. The past several summers have been the hottest on record. Hurricanes are becoming more powerful. Forest fires are more destructive. The grim news goes on and on. It can feel as though our actions don't matter, but they do. There are so many of us who have horses. We have land. We can make a difference. When we each become better soil farmers, collectively, we will make a difference. So let's get started. Horses for Future supports the Fridays for Future initiatives. We want to take meaningful action that will help reverse climate change. So every Monday through Horses for Future, we're going to announce a project for the week. This will be something everyone can participate in. Whether you have your own land or you board your horses, or maybe you don't even have horses. Whether you are six years old or 60, everyone can participate. Through the Horses for Future Facebook group, we can share resources and ideas. And each Friday, we're going to celebrate our successes. For thousands of years, horses have been intimately woven into our history. Riding on their backs, we have spread out over the planet. We have ridden them to war, and we have used them to pull plows. Now let us enter a new relationship with horses, one that takes us in fellowship with them, 
to a healthy planet. So join us on Mondays for our next Horses for Future project. You'll find us on Facebook. And remember also to check out the sequestercarbon.com website. And next week, we'll have another Equosity podcast. Join us and help us change the planet. So don't go away. This may have sounded like the ending, but it's really not. I've invited Dominique to join me this afternoon for a conversation between the two of us about Manda's podcast, because Dominique, you weren't able to join me when we recorded the podcast with Manda, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what she was sharing with us. It was a great conversation. You know, it made me think that for hundreds of years, Our horses have been kept in a way that's very convenient for humans, but not optimal for our horses' welfare and certainly not optimal for the planet, as eloquently described by Manda. So I believe that rethinking how we keep our horses is a must, and your barn is certainly a great example of rethinking how we keep our horses. You briefly alluded to it during the the podcast, but I think it would be very interesting for people to hear more about your setup because I think it's a great setup. And maybe not just outside the barn and not just the land, but also inside the barn because I think if I were a horse, I would really like to live at your place. (laughs) And I think it can be an inspiration for people. You did a great post in the Horses for Future Facebook group, but not everybody is a member of that group, probably. And so if you could maybe tell us a little bit more of your setup, I think it could be a good example of the kind of rethinking that can be done. Let me approach it in a slightly different way by saying that my barn works because of the training that's in my horses, which is not something that we necessarily always think about, that when we're designing spaces for horses, that one of the things that I feel really strongly about is that training creates opportunities for more freedom, for more privileges. It does that for people, Yep. And it certainly does that for animals. Mm-hmm. I, I'm tempted to share a goat story, but I'll, I'll, I'll hold it for later. So my barn, it's, it's designed very much like the boarding barn where my horses were for a long number of years. But with all the improvements, I'll say, that living in a barn that, wasn't, that didn't quite meet my needs or the horse's needs created. So the boarding barn was set up so that it had an indoor arena. It wasn't a big indoor arena, but an indoor arena. And on the near side, the short side, there was a barn attached. So you had two rows of stalls and you walked straight into the barn. And the problem for the horses is, A, they were living in stalls for way too many hours. And the interior stalls were really dark and airless, and the walls were solid between the stall, uh, the stalls, which I understand in a boarding barn why you would do that. It, it helps in part to reduce 
the spread of any illnesses if that should be a factor in a barn and if you bring a new horse in you they're thinking that it reduces some of the horse to horse um, aggression but it for a social species it's really hard living in a box that has solid walls it's not what horses really thrive in so my barn does have stalls i think stalls are handy the stalls are there if we need at any time to have a horse on stall rest which we've had or if we want to separate them for feeding which is frequently the case so the stalls are handy or for a veterinarian right there are all kinds of reasons why having a smaller space is is useful so having a stall is a useful thing but the stalls are not solid walls from top to bottom there they have a solid base which that was fun when we built the barn we kept bringing the horses in it was like having a fitting for clothes you know is, is this is this going to be high enough is it too low because we right. had the Icelandics <laughs> and we had the taller horses so so is this going to be so how high did you I'd make have it to measure but it was it was it was <laughs> about what shoulder no, no, well height? um it's not an abnormal height I would have to measure it's one of those yeah. when you're around it all day how uh, how tall are they they're but they're a good height and they're a good height for both the uh, ICs who are shorter and and Robin who's taller so everyone can visit with everyone, everyone can visit the stall walls the upper half the bars are horizontal instead of vertical which gives a lot more uh, visiting opportunities for the horses, but still keeps uh, if you if a horse needs a little privacy, that's provided. So all of that is to the good. But that's so the, the basic barn was the footprint was modeled on this other barn because from a human point of view, it's very convenient. Hmm. I don't really like the shed rows that are the length of an arena because it's a lot of walking. If you've forgotten something that's at the other end of the barn, it's a lot further to walk. This is just a really convenient place for the horses, but I'm meandering. What really makes the difference in my barn is that the horses have shown me that I can open all the doors. So it's evolved with them and I think that's one of the things that I really like about any barn that's well designed is that a good barn has flexibility so we can change the configuration around so as the horses as they show us that they can be responsible in larger spaces I can leave the doors open and they can wander in. They have free access to the barn aisle. And so there's a lot of intermingling of people and horses. There isn't that separation. And we can do that because of the training that's in them. So last year, we had a new horse come to the barn. She's a, a rescue horse, the, my longtime stall cleaner, Bob Viviano, who has made my traveling possible because he comes and looks after the horses when I'm away. He adopted, rescued a horse that he's looked after for a number of years. She came to the barn and she had lived in what for a horse was a fairly impoverished environment. She had been living on her own in a small, very small paddock that was, that was basically a mudlot. Hmm. 
She had been handled all of her life, but she'd had a very severe injury as a young horse, so she's never started under saddle. She had minimal training, and she's now living in my barn, and I needed to get to know her. She spent the winter in her own separate area, so our barnyard is wonderfully flexible. We have round pen panels that make up the barnyard, and I can change the interior configuration so I can expand it, I can contract it, I can make multiple areas within the larger barnyard so that the horses can interact with one another over these round pen panels. They can get to know one another, but if a horse needs to be separated for any reason or if they need a larger area, smaller area, we can move, we can change the configuration. So while we were getting to know her, she lived in her own apartment, as it were. So she had a stall, she had a sunroom adjacent to the stall where that so she could go in and out, and then she had a section of the barnyard. And through the winter, we worked on the training. So she learned the core foundation lessons. She became a mat superstar. She worked in grown-ups. We worked on, uh, I needed to make sure that she backed up readily. And she learned all of these basic manners through the winter. And then in the spring, when we opened up the paddocks, we used the mats to take her, to teach her how to go out to turn out in a very safe and calm manner because this was not in repertoire. This is, by the way, an 18-year-old horse that I'm talking about. Mm. Um, so she's had a lot of years of not knowing how to do a lot of basic things. So we taught her how to go out to turn out. I did that by herself. And when she showed me that she could go out to turn out in and out, I took advantage of the spring grass to turn her out with the others. And once she was out with the others, that meant that she also would have what they have, which is free-flowing access throughout the barn. So they can go into the indoor arena, and that's where they, they, they go in at night. They have a very set routine. At you know, 9 o'clock, I know that they're all, they've all wandered into the indoor arena, and if I go out half an hour later, they'll be lying down. And Because you should say that your arena footing is covered with shavings yes so the, the whole arena so the whole it's arena. A that's my footing giant um door stall and and it means that i clean it like a stall mm-hmm. and i maintain that footing so it stays nice and fresh and it's a great riding surface i love riding on it and the horses enjoy living on it and then they can go out into the barn aisle. That's where we hang the hay nets, and there are hay nets in the stalls. And there's water buckets set by the wash stalls, so that's very convenient. And they can wander out, and they can go out into the barnyard. Now, we don't let them out on the pastures 24-7. So in my climate, from everything that I've heard, that the sugar levels in the grass start to go up around 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. So I like to bring the horses in by mid to late morning. And actually in the summer, they've usually brought themselves in long before that. So we give them access to the grass at certain times of the day, but not 24-7. But they have 
a lot of free-flowing room in between. And I built this, and I hadn't heard about the equicentral system that Jane Myers has developed and is an advocate for. But when I looked at what she was designing, I said, oh, look at that. This is an equicentral plan where you have you have the hay and the water and those resources centrally located, and then the turnout is attached to that. So the horses, you can you can change which field, which pasture, you can rotate pastures really easily. But the the point for this is that when this this new horse was introduced to the others, first of all, there was never there was never even a squeal. They just flowed together magnificently. And she was able to have the same freedom that the others are afforded. So she gets along great. She can be in the barn aisle with them. So I'll frequently be in the barn aisle and there'll be three horses in the barn aisle with me. And because of the training, it stays safe. And not only can I be in the barn aisle, but other people can as well. And that includes my other partner in the barn, Ann Edie. And people know Ann, she's Panda's owner and Ann is blind. So the horses that are in the barn, they have to have well they mannered. have to have really good people manners because it yes. wouldn't be it wouldn't be safe for any of us. So I think part of what goes along with really with allowing horses to have these extra freedoms, privileges, whatever you want to call it, benefits, welfare benefits, is is good training. So maybe I'd like to add something here. If someone says, oh, I love this idea of not having my horse spend so many hours in a box, because even if you, you know, I know a lot of barns where the turnout is about two hours, and some others where you get up to six hours, which is about the number of light in the winter where I live. Right. So the horses go out at around eight, nine o'clock, and they come back in around four o'clock. So that would be eight hours, which seems like a lot, but that means that there's 16 hours spent in right. the box. And my horses would tell us that they actually, given choice, they don't necessarily want to stay out. So even right. if they're turned out in a nice field, my horses, there are times of the year when the pasture gate is open and they're going, no, thank you, we, we're not interested because the flies are so... Yeah, well, I know here too in Canada in January and February, they really want to come in. Um, so yeah. it's complicated. Huh? Should, should, should they be out? Should they be in? Should you heat your barn? Should you not heat your barn? Should you put a blanket? Should you not put a blanket? Right. Well, the heating of the barn is really for people. Well, the, the thing about the free housing which I think is wonderful to hear, you know, to have your horses have so much choice, so many choices and be able to come in and come out and go in the arena or stay in the barn aisle. Let's say, so, because I had an, also an experience of free housing, which I absolutely loved because when I was managing all the retired horses at Cavalia, so I had a big property, 80 acres, I had many barns, but I had, and as, as you you know, Alex, I had a lot of stallions, Right. and I also had four mares, which were never yes. part of the show, 
And obviously, the mayors had to be kept separate from the rest of the group for many reasons, including the fact that I had stallions. One of those four mayors was extremely claustrophobic. She did not want to be in a stall. Even if I made a double star, she made it very clear she would eat. Uh, you know, there were teeth traces on the walls. She did not like to be inside of a box. So I had like a big garage where we would put the tractors and all that. So for her and her three other friends, some of whom were quite arthritic, Arthritic? Arthritic. Yes. I did this free housing setup where the, I would say, the level of training necessary for it to work was not as great as what you're describing. The prerequisite was that the four mayors were friends, they were getting along, and they had been together for a while. So what I did was I had this huge um, space with shavings, uh, rubber mats and shavings. Inside the space, I also had four boxes so that I could, for the same reason, I wanted all the grain, the meals to be inside, not the hay, but the grain would be given inside. Each mare would go inside their stall and once they were in, the grain would come in. And as soon as the meal was over, all the doors would be opened and they would come out. And so they had plenty of room to, they wouldn't have, galloped in there, but they had quite a lot of room. They could lie down very comfortably. And I always thought, and they would go out, of course. I loved that setup. Oh, so did I. I loved you know, I've it. always thought if I were a horse, this is how I want to live. Yeah. It was a great setup because even in the winter when the footing outside was very dangerous, I wouldn't feel like they were boxed in because they had this huge space. They could just wander around and I mean, there wouldn't be the kind of light that there was outside, but it was still a really good turnout situation, really. So I think that free housing, when you have horses who get along, it just seems to make, and this this mare was perfectly okay being inside in there. She actually liked it quite a lot because she's very old and it was comfortable in the middle of the winter when it's... Well, I don't know in Fahrenheit, but in Celsius minus, minus 30 degrees with wind, she would much prefer be being in this uh, uh, kind of a setup. So I wouldn't say that it was inconvenient for the human. It, it was very easy to get them. You know, we would just have to yes. go in and get them. It was was not, um, it was a win-win really. And it yes. felt good year round. Yes, but I, and I think the, point that you're making at the beginning of how we've kept horses has been for our convenience yeah and not so much for the horse's welfare yeah and that a clean horse in a box ready to ride at all time right right available to you and he's had his maybe he's had a little bit of turnout to take the edge off but you want him available when you turn up to ride and the reality is so we're we're cha- we're changing a lot of our ideas mm-hmm. about how to maintain horses. So we yeah. are looking more at horse welfare, and of course, it's all well and good for it's all well and good for me to say, well, this is how my horses are living, and they have all this lovely choice and free access. But you know, I boarded for ever it seems, and I know the constraints of big boarding barns. So I know that it's not always 
possible that the choices that you have in terms of what is available for boarding it's not always ideal no and so I certainly would not want somebody to be feeling as though they are not doing the best for their horse because they're in a boarding situation where they can't provide good stalls with good ventilation and so on. However, we, if you are building a new barn, instead of just doing what the way the doing it the way it's been done forever, exactly, you can and you have the opportunity to rethink it. Yes, yes. And I can. I think it can be done in a way where it is still practical, but can make a world of difference to the horses. Yes. And, you know, the for, for the pastures, you know, what, what you were discussing with Manda, the, the rotation and not overgrazing pastures, I think that it's, that's something that is possible. You know, it's not out of reach. It's good for the land. It's good for the horses because they have something to graze. The, if the grass is very stressed, it's, it, it's very, it's more dangerous because of the sugar in it. So... I think that the rotation and the, the overgrazing is pretty much basic principles that people should try and put into practice. And so tell us what you do with for your pastures yourself and your composting and, and all that at your barn, just to kind of wrap up and come back to the original uh, land management. Well, we, we have three pastures that are fenced that that the horses have access to and they encircle the barn so the horses can have access to all three simultaneously or I can close off and give them access to just one or two depending upon the time of the year so I can create a rotation based on what gates I have open and closed and each of the pastures can be accessed from the barn. So if I want to give them access to the lower pasture, I open one gate. If I want them to be in the upper pasture, I open a different gate. So there's no leading horses in and out. That's something that... Talk about practical. Oh, totally. I mean, that's what I want, is I want a barn that is practical for for me and comfortable for the horses. So leading horses in and out takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. And yes, I understand the argument of, oh, but it's good training. It gives you an opportunity to work on basic leading manners, leading horses in and out. And I think that sounds great, except day in and day out, I'd much rather have the horses be able to go in and out on their own. And that way, if the flies are really bad, they bring themselves in. If it's a comfortable day and they want to be out, they can be out. And all I have to do is open or close a gate, which makes it really easy. Yeah, and we know from, you know, all that we've read and heard, including uh, the work of Dr. Susan Friedman, that having choice over uh, one's outcome is one of the things that makes for a thriving animal. Yes, yes. Or human. (laughs) Or human, that's right, that's right. So the more you can create an environment that has some complexity to it, I think that's also important that that there is some complexity and some opportunity for them to exercise make choices. choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as to exercise themselves. <laughs> so you know, I like it when they they have the upper field 
and I open one gate and they have to go all the way around the arena to get up there. It gives them, mm-hmm. it, 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 there's a fair amount of movement, but even within when they have just one pasture, I do, I look out and I'll see, oh, they've started down there and now they're up there and now they're over in that corner and now they've come back into the arena and they've gotten a drink and oh, they've gone back out again. So they do a fair amount of moving around in the configurations that I have. And I think I could do better with the pasture management and rotation. There's a lot that I wanna learn about how long I should let them stay on a particular field, how how frequent we do mow. Uh, there's a lot of uneven growth. There are things that they don't eat. And I, I don't want to let the weeds get too tall because we have ticks in our area that carry Lyme yeah. disease, etc. So I do mow the fields. Well, there's also, you know, because part of the learning and I mean the day you you decide to get a horse you better like to learn yes because there's a lot to learn so I don't know what the best practices are in terms of biodiversity for this but certainly it's been my experience that if you if you just let it go well, sometimes you lose your you lose your grass so I don't know that would be a question for um, Amanda and um, the experts for good yes for good botanist and and I really I think it's really exciting this idea that through good pasture management we can sequester more carbon mm-hmm. I, I that we can be part of the solution that our love of horses can lead the way towards really understanding how to help solve this this climate crisis problem that yes we need to reduce the amount of carbon we're producing but the other side of that coin of we can increase the amount of carbon we're sequestering i i was watching a ted talk last night i remember it's one of those i'd seen it oh it must have been like three or four years ago i'd seen this when it was first produced and I was really quite astounded by the pictures that the speaker was showing. And there are a lot of things I don't, you know, we watch so many things, we read so many articles, et cetera, et cetera, that for the most part, they just kind of fade away. But this one really... Yeah, and our our awareness of the urgency um, of saving the planet, I think, has raised a lot in the past few years. I mean, here we're in the middle of a political campaign. And it's one of the main issues of the electoral campaign. Yeah. Well, and what, what this presenter was showing, is his name is Alan Savory, and he's uh, from Africa. And he was showing the effect that mob grazing can have on the land. And that this system, and it's starting to, it's being adopted by other, by cattle farmers, for example, the man who wrote Dirt to Soil is a, uh, uses the mob grazing mm-hmm. principle. It's that, that law of uh, the second bite that Amanda was talking about, where you have a large number of cattle on the land, but they're not there very long. So mm-hmm. in, in the Dirt to Soil, in his system, he's rotating his cows three or four times a day, which right. <laughs> we're not going to be doing with our horses. Probably not. No. Um, but when you have, when you're 
raising the number of animals that he's raising on a commercial level. And he's got electric gates and so on to make it all very practical. His description of, of his system is, well, actually, this sounds feasible and that he's moving the cattle on. And what it does is it builds up this just glorious soil. And the pictures that I was seeing in this TED Talk with Alan Savory is he would show this absolutely barren ground that had just been destroyed by overgrazing, apparently. And then you start putting these, these rotational grazing of large number of animals onto the land, and all of a sudden, I mean, you can't even recognize it. It's green. It's, it's lush. Mm. In an area that was becoming desert, all of a sudden you have this green oasis back. And it means that in areas where there was carbon being released because of the soil degrading, now there's, there's carbon being sequestered. And it's very hopeful. It's very hopeful. It's hopeful. There's a lot to learn. Sometimes it's confusing. I find that sometimes it's difficult to know what to follow, right? where to find the information. It, you know, we need guidance in helping us because you will hear one thing and it, it's contrary. Again, it's always information yes. and it's, there's a lot to take yes. in. <laughs> well, and that's why I'm really excited by the, this, these podcasts from Amanda because I think it opens the door to a huge amount of learning. And there are all kinds of people that I hope we get to interview in the future because I, I love to learn. And this is an area that I think uh, we definitely want to learn more about because you can. it's all well and good to talk about training, but if you don't have a healthy horse, it doesn't matter what, how good you are at training. You're not going to have a good result. So... Um, the horse's welfare, the how that having a healthy pasture for them to go out on, having the kind of barn set up where they are living in social groups where there's not a lot of pressure, where they're feeling the stress from being with neighbors that they don't really get along with, but being in a really comfortable social group in a healthy environment for them. All of this is an important part of training, that you can't, you can't yeah. talk about training without also taking into consideration how your horse is living. What are yep. the physical needs as well as the emotional needs that uh, need to be met? Yep. What we want for our horse is the good life, all of it. The good life. That's yep. right. That's right. So let's end on that note and go out and learn more. <laughs>